welcome to this newsaz.com special, the 80th anniversary of the Mercury Theater on the air broadcast of the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, part of our 2018 War of the Worlds Week celebration. I am Matt coming to you from our Orlando, Florida studio, and I am ready to discuss one of my all-time favorite media and pop culture subjects, maybe even a vintage pop culture subject in this case, the 1938 CBS broadcast of the War of the Worlds. This is our third year celebrating the War of the Worlds by dedicating an entire week in October to the subject, and as many of you know, it's all because of this 1938 version of that legendary story. This 1938 radio drama is a huge source of inspiration for many of the things that I've done at Neozaz, and in many ways, a big reason why Neozaz exists. The radio drama, this play, this entire performance is what hooked me on audio as an entertainment medium decades ago. I didn't hear the original broadcast. I am old, but I'm not that old. But I did hear about it at a pretty young age. My first listen came many, many years later when a cassette copy of the 1968 LP album made its way to me and I finally got the chance to hear what was behind that legend I'd heard about for years. I specifically waited for the sun to be completely down and the moon to be out so I could put myself in to a mind frame that listeners might have been back in 1938 when I first listened to this tape. It was well into the night when I hit play and heard something that I would consider to be one of the greatest entertainment works of all time. And it all started like this. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. But before we go too far into this, we need to wind the clock back a bit to lay some groundwork. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied. Perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. These are the opening sentences of H.G. Wells' story, The War of the Worlds, first published in a serialization for both Pearson's Magazine and The Cosmopolitan in 1897, then subsequently republished as a novel in 1898. At the time, it was widely received as a good story. Some minor criticisms, as any literary work will always receive, but by and large, it was well-liked and well-received. And despite it being over 120 years old at the time of these recordings, it's still generally regarded as a good story with ratings of 3.47 out of 5 on Library Thing, 3.8 out of 5 stars on Goodreads, and 4.5 stars on Amazon.com. But beyond being well-liked, it's also regarded as one of the origins of the alien invasion fantasy tales. Three core stories are generally, if not unanimously, I need to say, considered the origins of the alien invasion story. 1752, Voltaire's Micromegas featured two aliens named Saturn and Sirius visiting Earth. They are gigantic creatures that think Earth is uninhabited because of the size difference. They don't see the little things that are running around in chaos as anything intelligent or important. They later learn of earthlings and basically laugh at the human idea of their self-importance in the universe compared to themselves. 
1892, Robert Potter's The Germ Growers was a story of aliens that disguised themselves as humans and developed a deadly disease to wipe out the real humans in order to conquer the planet. Both are good ideas and unique stories, but none were an all-out direct and violent attack against humanity, not until 1897, when H.G. Wells crash-landed Martians on Earth and had them greeting Earthlings with a deadly heat ray in a story that's inspired countless works and remakes and retellings of this title, The War of the Worlds. H.G. Wells was a prolific writer, having written well over 100 fiction and non-fiction novels, including... Famous titles outside of War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, The First Men on the Moon, The War in the Air, and The Holy Terror. All good choices for a Halloween-themed episode for a budding radio performance ensemble in New York in 1938, but The War of the Worlds was the one they chose. And that radio ensemble was the Mercury Theater on the Air. Mercury Theater on the Air launched on July 11th, 1938 on the CBS radio network, though that wasn't the show's original name. The original show name was First Person Singular, a name that stuck for their first nine episodes until it changed to the Mercury Theater on the Air. It was an hour-long live radio anthology drama series, first airing on Mondays at 9 p.m. Eastern, then later moved to Sundays, 8 p.m. Eastern, on its September 11th performance and adaptation of... William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, which the adaptation was called simply Caesar. This new name for the show, the Mercury Theater on the Air, was born from the original entertainment venue that brought this creative group to CBS, the Mercury Theater, an independent repertory theater company also in New York City, started by Orson Welles and John Hausman. Welles and Hausman had a remarkable run of critically acclaimed adaptations and performances with the Mercury Theater, Enough so for CBS to offer them this weekly one-hour airtime to bring their work and hopefully their success to radio with a 13-week summer series. Following the successful formula Wells and Hausman created with their stage productions, classic works of literature were the focus of the stories to be formed by the Mercury Theater on the Air. They created a strong starting lineup with the radio troupe beginning with Bram Stoker's Dracula, airing on July 11, 1938, followed by Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island on July 18, 1938, and Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities on July 25, 1938. The show had a fairly successful run with the original 13 weeks offered by CBS, but didn't quite hit the highs and critical acclaim of the original Mercury Theater. But it did get enough attention for CBS to continue the series. On October 9, 1938, episode 14 of the Mercury Theater on the air was going to be broadcast. At this point, in this period of time, there was a little bit of a hurdle for the creative team of Orson Welles and John Hausman. This was also the time of year where the next season of the original Mercury Theater, the stage production theater, was to get underway. Up until this point, Orson Welles and John Hausman had been doing all of the story and script writing for the Mercury Theater on the air. With the new stage theater season starting... This was going to be an impossible task for the two to continue, at least impossible to maintain that high level of quality both men were striving for with both venues. Enter former Chicago lawyer turned playwright Howard E. Koch. Koch was hired by the Mercury Theater on the air as a writer, and he started his work with Hell on Ice, the 14th episode for the Mercury Theater on the air. 
With that successful production, three weeks later would come episode 17, the October 30th, 1938 episode. The night before Halloween, mischief night in many parts of the country. So what story to tell? The choice of the Martian invasion by H.G. Wells was made relatively quickly. The pace at which these shows were written, prepared, and set to perform is almost unfathomable for the time, and in many ways kind of unfathomable for the times we live in now, so a lot of time could not be wasted trying to figure out which story they were going to do. So though the story was a relatively easy and quick pick, the setting for this was thrown right out the window immediately. Instead of making it a period piece, having the event take place in Victorian age England, the story was going to unfold in a series of live real-time news reports. That format was Orson Welles' idea. And the inspiration for that? Well, we're going to have to rewind the clock a little bit again to get the full picture. Here we are in England. It's January 16th, 2026, and we are broadcasting from a fledgling radio service barely three years old called the British Broadcasting Company, or the BBC for short. It's 7.40 p.m., and Ronald Knox, a Catholic priest slash crime novelist slash radio host, is about to come on the air. He usually broadcasts sermons in this time slot, so let's see what he has for us tonight. So, obviously, with a setup like that, listeners did not hear a sermon from Ronald Knox that night. This time, he had something different prepared. Anyone that heard Ronald Knox sermons in the past were used to his usual low-key religious broadcast. They sounded something like this. It is when Eve says, I have gotten a man from the Lord in some forlorn cave remote of access fenced about from the wild beasts. The first human mother gave birth to the first human child, Cain, as she called him. But tonight, Ronald Knox's show is very different. An unemployment demonstration in London. The crowd has now passed along Whitehall and, at the suggestion of Mr. Popperberry, is preparing to demolish the Houses of Parliament with trench mortars. The clock tower, 320 feet in height, has just fallen to the ground. Together with the famous clock Big Ben, which used to strike the hours on a bell weighing nine tons. That was an excerpt from Ronald Knox's scripted piece, Broadcasting the Barricades. Wonderfully reenacted by myself, of course, for the none of you who couldn't tell. Broadcasting the Barricades was a 17-minute radio drama Knox created for this night's broadcast. It was even listed by that title in that day's The Times broadcast listings. It started out simple enough, local news cricket scores, and then on to a remote broadcast of the Savoy Hotel's orchestra performance. The music was suddenly interrupted by a news report. This format is probably starting to sound familiar. In this case, the news report was about an unemployment demonstration in Trafalgar Square turning violent. After the update, Knox went back to the music. News reports kept rolling in as the violence escalated up until the point you just heard in that recreation. Even a little bit beyond that. Knox went as far as to blow up the Savoy Hotel as the orchestra was performing. This broadcast happened 12 years prior to the Mercury Theater on the Air's adaptation of The War of the Worlds. Both Orson Welles and John Hausman have been noted as having made mention of a dramatic broadcast of this nature 12 years prior to The War of the Worlds in separate interviews. Neither Wells nor Hausman ever made the mention of the name of that production, but there aren't too many 1926 broadcasts that follow this disaster news bulletin format. 
I think it might even be safe to say there are no others. But here's the thing about that a little tidbit of history. Orson Welles was 10 at the time of that broadcast and attending a public school in Madison, Wisconsin. It's not likely that he heard this broadcast. There's a reasonable chance that he heard a recording if any had been made. We know that none survived today, but maybe there was once one that lasted long enough to be heard again, particularly by Orson Welles. But that seems doubtful too, by all accounts. It may be more likely to say that Orson Welles heard of this broadcast. Reports of Knox's dramatized broadcast were made in both England and the United States at the time. It's also possible that he may have read the script at one point. That does still survive today. Whatever the case may be, it's not a real stretch of the imagination that in some way broadcasting the barricades was influential to Orson Welles' idea behind how he wanted the War of the Worlds adapted for his radio play. But that's not the only thing that likely influenced the idea. It's time to fast forward now, but not quite to 1938. It's April 11th, 1937, 18 months before even starting pre-production or writing the Mercury Theater on the air's adaptation of The War of the Worlds. It's 7 p.m. Eastern, and the CBS radio show Columbia Workshop is about to broadcast The Fall of the City. Right off the bat, something sounds familiar to War of the Worlds fans. The expectation cheat, the expectant eye. The appearance defaults with us. Here in this city, the wall of the time cracks. We take you now to the great square of this city. If you need a refresher, here's what this immediately reminded me of. We are ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Now, The Fall of the City is more of an ongoing news report rather than an entertainment show interrupted by news bulletins. But the format of that news reporting, the moving from reporter to action and changing locations, it all has a really familiar sound to the War of the Worlds. It was also a CBS radio production, the broadcast company for the Mercury Theater on the Air. It also has a pretty strong cast. The studio director was played by accomplished radio, stage, and television actor, House Jameson. The orator was played by Burgess Meredith. And the announcer was played by Orson Welles. There's yet another Columbia Workshop episode that likely influenced the idea of making the War of the Worlds in the form of a breaking news report. And this one was performed even closer to the time that the Mercury Theater on the Air would start work on their piece. It's the episode Air Raid by Archibald McClesh. And though I hadn't mentioned it earlier, he also wrote Fall of the City. This episode features a narrator that isn't specifically labeled as a news reporter, but he is an omnipresent character that explains the events that are happening in real time while taking us to people's homes as they experience these frightening air raid alarms and planes passing overhead. So not a news report in the traditional sense, but the idea of being told what's happening, where we're headed next, and hearing events unfold with these people as it's happening to them does sound like a familiar storytelling method. Now, if you're keeping track of the dates, that's just three days before the War of the Worlds broadcast. And as we're going to learn in just a minute, it's three days after writing for the War of the Worlds is even assigned. So how does that all work out in this timeline? we have to take a little more into consideration than just the air date. This was the 120th episode of a well over 300 episode run for the Columbia Workshop series. Unlike the Mercury Theater on the air, 
Columbia Workshop had many different writers, producers, and directors throughout the series. Many shows were in the writing, rehearsing, and revision stages for months at a time. Air Raid was no exception. The idea for the story Air Raid was in the works long before October, and with Orson Welles' affiliation with CBS, it's likely that he knew a lot about this story before work even started on War of the Worlds. If he didn't, actor Ray Collins did. Collins was part of the Mercury Theater on the Air Ensemble and was lent out to Columbia Workshop to perform in Air Raid. Collins would be back with the Mercury Theater on the Air three days later to perform three roles in the War of the Worlds. So again, we might never know exactly what, when, where, and how much exposure Orson Welles had to Air Raid, but it's not hard to assume that he had some exposure to Air Raid prior to his concept for the War of the Worlds got underway. Now, we've made it to October 1938, the 24th of October 1938 to be exact. The Mercury Theater just wrapped up Around the World in 80 Days the night before, and new head writer for the radio theater, Howard Koch, was given his next assignment. Adapt H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds for the October 30th broadcast, a mere six days away. When giving Koch the assignment, John Houseman gave him a copy of the book and the instructions that the script was going to be a news report of the story with firsthand and eyewitness accounts of the events as they unfold. Just before Houseman gave Koch the assignment, he did secure the rights to adapt and perform the story. Houseman had gotten the rights for the story from H.G. Wells' New York representative, though he didn't really feel the need to mention that they were changing the location, time setting, format, Pretty much everything from the original written story except for the idea itself. Koch read the book, and it didn't take him long to realize that about the only things he could take from the original written text were the invasion, the Martian's appearance, and the war machines. Not really knowing where to go from there, Koch slept on the idea that night. The next morning, October 25th, five days before the broadcast, Koch did not wake up feeling any better about this idea. He contacted John Hausman asking to postpone the story. Hausman took his concerns to Wells and returned with an answer, a stern no to that postponement. Koch needed to clear his head, so he drove to the city of Kingston, New York to visit his father briefly. Feeling a bit re-energized from the road trip, Koch began to think more about the story and what he could do. First and foremost, he needed a location for the Martians to land and mount their impending takeover. That's when a tiny town in New Jersey was about to become one of the most infamous places in radio history. I had been up to the uh, country, see my father, Kingston, New York, and coming down, I went through a portion of New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I stopped at a gas station, and they gave me New Jersey map. So when I came back to my apartment, I spread out the map on the table, <laughs> closed my eyes, <laughs> put the pencil down. And that's where the down. Martians landed. That was Grover's Mill. Grover's Mill was almost a too perfect a place to have that pencil fall. It's a small town, a place you can find on a map, and close enough to Princeton and New York to bring the observatory and the final assault against humanity into the story. But that's about all Koch could really get excited about so far in regards to this story. October 26th, four days before the broadcast, Koch was at his wits end trying to adapt this story. It just was not working, and he could not make the Martian attack on New York and New Jersey credible to a listening audience. 
It was at this point that Koch tried to put his plan B on the table. There was a script done and ready to be performed, an adaptation of the novel Lorna Dune by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. Not the first choice for a Halloween episode, but it was a completed script, a known story, and part of the classic literature that Mercury Theater was known for performing. Koch proposed this performance change to Houseman. Houseman knew Koch well enough at this point that if he was this close to borderline panic, Koch might have a real problem writing this adaptation. Houseman reluctantly tried to call Orson Welles, not reluctantly in the idea of delivering bad news or trying to talk Welles into performing a different story that coming Sunday, reluctant in a way that he was pretty sure Welles wasn't going to answer that call. At this point in time, the Mercury Theater, the original stage performance theater, was already into its new season and Orson Welles had just clocked in his 36th straight hour of rehearsal for Danton's death. Before leaving this rehearsal, he warned everyone that he wasn't to be interrupted. And as you can guess, Wells never picked up that phone call from John Hausman. Hausman called Catch back and now had to give him some tough love. He was a bit stern and maybe bordering on insulting, telling Koch that he was stuck in a defeatist attitude and needed to snap out of it and get the job done. Houseman ended that phone call stating that he'd be by later that night to help him out and reiterated that this was going to have to get done. At 2 a.m. on October 27th, three days before the broadcast, Houseman arrived at Koch's apartment to find a completely different playwright than the one he'd last talked to on the phone. Koch had finally found his story and his stride and now was having earnest fun as he wrote the pages that destroyed New Jersey. Houseman caught himself up on the script and began giving suggestions and ideas as Koch wrote and they revised through that entire night. Morning came and as he wrote, Koch gave the handwritten yellow legal pads to his secretary and Froelich to decipher and type up the script. By sundown, October 27th, the draft was ready for a rehearsal run. In the end, a script that originally called for much of the actors and actresses in the Mercury Theater on the Air Ensemble was now an all-male performance in its final format. There were four roles for women started in the first notes of Koch's script. Through the overnight revisions, those roles were all eliminated or replaced with male characters, including one role that would have featured one of the most acclaimed Mercury Theater on the air performers, Agnes Moorhead, a name probably most recognized by my generation as the actress that would later play Endora in the 1960s and 70s sitcom Bewitched. I will somewhat shamefully admit, I never noticed specifically that this was an all-male cast. I can't even guess how many times I've listened to this performance now, and I hadn't realized there are no women performers. And with a somewhat greater irony in that, without one woman specifically, this broadcast would not be what it was and likely not one I'd listen to 80 years later repeatedly. We'll get to more on who I'm talking about and why I'm saying that very shortly here. Now the night of October 27th, again, three days before the broadcast, rehearsal director and performer Paul Stewart arranged the read-through of the script. It was recorded for Orson Welles to listen to before the night of the broadcast performance. This was the usual practice for the production workflow for the Mercury Theater on the air. The cast decided to take a listen to the recording before turning it over to Welles. They were not enthused by what they heard and left feeling like this was going to be a huge flop come broadcast time. The recording was delivered to Wells' hotel room. He'd been staying at the St. Regis Hotel during the run of Danton's death. 
Houseman and Stewart, both having heard the recording, waited for Wells to return from the rehearsal so that they could all listen to it together. The three listened to the recording and agreed. It was boring. Wells, Houseman, and Stewart did see where the story worked, the live news reports. If those were amped up and more of the folks of the story, that would vastly improve this whole show. Wells listed a few specific suggestions and then left the hotel to continue his work on Danton's death. Hausman and Stewart spent the rest of the night reworking the script, emphasizing those eyewitness reports and expanding on the details seen and described during the more horrific moments. They'd pass these notes and ideas to Koch to work into the script as Froelich would continue to type what was scrawled on those yellow legal pads. The rest of the performers got involved in the rewrites as well, not so much as adding and removing scenes, but more subtle and equally important changes like changing the words and sentence structures to make the eyewitness accounts and reports sound more natural and not as scripted. The following morning, October 28th, two days before the broadcast, the revised script was delivered to CBS for the network censor approval. 27 censor edits were made to the script, most notably the changing of the names of the real New York Hotel Biltmore to the non-existent Park Plaza and the very real and recognized CBS building to the general broadcast building. And in a big what could have been moment, the Martians chanting of a war cry during the attacks was removed. The now censor-approved script was passed off to the typing pool and the copies were typed up and prepared for the broadcast. With the scripts on stands, October 29th, one day before the broadcast, the rehearsal was ready to begin. At this point, the scripts are ready. The actors that will be performing in the broadcast are ready. Paul Stewart standing in as director for the rehearsal is ready. There's another big piece to add to make this the first true test of the adaptation of the War of the Worlds complete. The sound design. The sound effects in the War of the Worlds are a as big a piece of this performance as the script and the actors. And ironically, for a script with only male characters, the sound for War of the Worlds was done by a woman. Perhaps the biggest unsung hero of the Mercury Theater on the air is the War of the Worlds is Aura Nichols. Aura Nichols was an immensely talented sound effects engineer, having started her career in entertainment as a vaudeville dancer and drummer. She moved into Sound and Music for silent movies and then on to radio. It's already remarkable that Aura Nichols worked in a facet of the radio industry that's predominantly worked by men. It's downright exceptional that she was the head of the sound effects for CBS in 1938. Not only was she the first woman in charge of sound effects for radio, but she was the only woman in charge of sound effects from radio ever. Aura Nichols' vast experience in radio sound effects includes her work on the science fiction series Buck Rogers in the 25th Century and the news dramatization series The March of Time, a set of experiences perfectly fitting for what this adaptation of War of the Worlds was to be. Aura's team for the War of the Worlds consisted of herself, James Rogan, and Ray Kremer, and together, with just a few hours over a couple of days, had to create a Martian attack with an armed forces retaliation, including an air attack. All this starting with the opening of the mysterious crashed cylinder. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from inside the object. I'll uh, move the microphone nearer. Here. Now, we're not more than 25 feet away. Uh, can you hear it now? 
Professor Pearson. Yes, sir. Uh, can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. Or and her team's work for the War of the Worlds wasn't documented. And much of what and how they did what they did in this episode's performance isn't fully known. The most famous, yet not 100% confirmed sound effect process was the opening of that Martian cylinder. Legend has it, the sound was made by unscrewing an empty pickle jar over an empty toilet in the CBS bathroom. This was reenacted in the 1975 TV movie, The Night America Panicked. Orrin Nichols and her sound team weren't the only ones working on enhancing this show with their particular skills and talent. Frank Reddick, the performer that would play reporter Carl Phillips, was working on a particular sound of his own to add to the show. Having now paged through the final script and reading over the initial Martian attack, Reddick was reminded of a news report that happened just 18 months prior, Herbert Morrison's account of the Hindenburg disaster. A back motor to the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. It burst into flames and it's falling. It's crazy. Watch it. Get it started, get it started. It's crazy, and it's crashing. It's crashing terrible. Oh, my. Get out of the way, please. It's burning, bursting into flames, and, and it's falling on the morning bath, and all the folks between us. This is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. Oh, it's, 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 it's crashing. 20, oh, four, five hundred feet into the sky. It, it's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the famous crashing to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. Oh, the humanity and all the fans are just screaming around here. I don't do it. I can't even talk to people. Reddick retrieved a copy of that report and listened to it over and over, drawing on the inflections and reactions to that real-life disaster to put into his performance in one of the most pivotal moments of the War of the Worlds. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from that mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Oh, the whole field's caught up by the woods. The bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. So the Saturday rehearsal came and went, and the cast and crew were exhausted and left the station ready to return in the morning for final rehearsals before the live broadcast. As the studio cleared out, Orson Welles called to check on the production. A sound engineer answered the phone, informing Wells that both John Houseman and Paul Stewart had already left. Wells asked for the engineer's opinion of the show. His response was not positive in the least, as Wells had feared. It's at this moment where many people involved with the production, and many people who've studied and researched this production, pinpoint Orson Welles taking the reins of this broadcast. Sunday, October 30th. The day of the broadcast. The cast and crew made their way into the station for the final rehearsal and revisions before going live on the air at 8 p.m. Eastern that night. This also included the arrival of a character missing up until this point, or kind of. The concept of the show story for War of the Worlds was a typical music performance broadcast interrupted by news bulletins pertaining to Mars and the subsequent cylinder crashes. The musical act for that show was the fictional Ramon Raquelo and his orchestra. The music for those segments was performed by the very real Bernard Benny Herman and the CBS Orchestra. Herman was a very serious classical musician. 
So much to the point that he was near horrified when told the music segments for this broadcast required dance music. Herman either couldn't or maybe more likely wouldn't get the rhythm down for the music segments of the show. With time dwindling away, Paul Stewart started snapping his fingers to the rhythm the music needed to be played. Well, this was not the best way to approach the issue with Herman's particular temperament, and Herman handed the baton to Stewart, insisting he conduct the orchestra, which Stewart did and got them playing at the right tempo. Herman begrudgingly took back the baton and prepared for the show. And now, this is the moment Orson Welles had arrived. Wells took to his director's podium and began the rehearsal. It didn't take long for Wells to react to what he was reading and what he was hearing and to start berating the script as corny and, in his words, the worst piece of crap I've ever had to do. For John Hausman, however, this was just another performance day rehearsal. Literally. These outbursts were common from Wells before a broadcast. Whether intended as a tactic or not, these moments, these outbursts, managed to serve as a start for a last-minute radical revision session from everyone in the cast and crew and ended up improving, yet again, what would be the final performance script. And after this final revision, the script was run through twice. The first performance was eight minutes too long. One last pass through the script was made, and what was seemed like enough time was cut. It was now 6 p.m. Eastern, two hours before the broadcast, the second rehearsal run was complete, and the runtime, 58 minutes. It was now the best it was going to be. The cast and crew had just enough time to eat a very quick dinner and prepare for the live broadcast. It was almost 8 o'clock. The noted, cut and taped, floor-thrown, wrinkled script lay on the stand in front of Orson Welles. Putting his headphones on and raising his hands... Orson Q's announcer, Dan Seymour. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. As the show progressed, the reports about explosions on Mars came in, followed by the landing of a mysterious cylinder in nearby Grover's Mill. 18 minutes into the broadcast is the first noted call to the radio station that came in looking for confirmation that this was or wasn't happening. At the 27-minute mark, the Secretary of the Interior, live from Washington, was patched in as he addressed the nation. This particular elected official sounded exactly like President Franklin D. Roosevelt. No accident, of course, Kenny Delmar had been practicing his FDR impression for this broadcast. The CBS censors forced the character change from FDR to the Secretary of Interior, but failed to mention what that replacement character should sound like, so Kenny did his FDR. This is when the control room phone rang with a call for CBS supervisor Davidson Taylor. Taylor left the control room for a few minutes, then returning looking, as John Hausman noted, pale as death. More frantic and more frightened phone calls were coming into the station. Taylor had been ordered to interrupt the broadcast and announce that this was a play. Not an easy task when Orson Welles is in mid-performance. The show continued and flew right past its scheduled break at the 30-minute mark. Orson Welles found the pacing for this sequence and was not going to stop until he reached the conclusion of the first part of this story. He eventually did. 40 minutes into the broadcast, Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air leveled New Jersey and had the Martians invading the Northeast. 
Now it was time to remind everyone that this was all an act. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the Air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The first part of this broadcast is where Wells was in complete control. Two run-throughs just hours ago, he knew the exact tone he needed to set, and he knew at what pace he had to direct this show. It needed to start slow, but not too slow, then pick up the pace, but not too fast. And Wells did it perfectly, managing to have the cylinders leave Mars, crash land, and destroy the tri-state area in a convincing 40 minutes and 22 seconds. There is a second part to this play, the Survivor Tale featuring Professor Pearson. But there aren't any accounts of people panicking that this poor man was alone wandering the countryside, so not much is ever mentioned about this part of the broadcast. And that led to the end of the broadcast. But that was just the start of the night. During that second part of the War of the Worlds broadcast, more calls came to the studio and more calls to the police. The police couldn't reach the radio station to find out what was going on because of all the busy lines. At this point in the evening, the police were on site in the studio trying to get a full picture of what was happening. The arrival of the police mixed with the calls taken throughout the broadcast caused CBS to act and act quickly. At the moment the broadcast was done, CBS employees rushed into the studio grabbing every script, recording, note, draft, anything and everything having to do with that night's broadcast was gathered up by CBS before the police and the press could even get a look at it. Orson Welles and John Hausman were led out of the studio and cut off from the rest of the cast and crew, as well as the police and news reporters inside the building. Not long after they exited the CBS building, though, they were rushed by reporters. They were thrown questions purposely worded, or words omitted more accurately, to paint them into a corner into admitting they'd done something they didn't really do. Questions like, are you aware of the woman killed in a car accident driving away from Grover's Mill? The question fails to mention that this woman didn't actually hear a second of the broadcast, and this is a terrible accident that just happens to occur the same night being the only connection to the show. Or about the man that suffered a heart attack that night, nowhere near a radio. Wells and Hausman avoided any answers to these loaded questions that would point any fingers to them, CBS, or the Mercury Theater on the air. But that didn't stop newspapers from running with the story, and the next morning, Wells and Hausman woke up to headlines like, Radio Fake Scares Nation by the Herald Examiner. Radio Listeners in Panic, Taking War Drama as Fact by the New York Times. Radio Play Terrifies Nation from the Boston Daily Globe. And the infamous New York Daily Times headline, Fake Radio War Stirs Terror Through U.S. Newspaper and radio had a very adversarial relationship at this time, though it was more on the newspaper side than a mutual thing. Radio was new. It was fast. It was pretty much instant information going directly into people's homes, and newspapers, by its very format, couldn't keep up. Collectively, either in an organized fashion or individually, newspapers took this opportunity to try to strike a damaging blow to radio by greatly over-exaggerating the events of the evening outside of that radio station. A tactic that might have worked better if not for one thing. Orson Welles saw right through it, and he countered. If listeners of the War of the Worlds thought Orson Welles gave a great performance the night before, they hadn't heard anything yet, as Welles called a press conference to address these issues and what could be the performance of his life as the innocent, humbled radio director 
making these overblown newspaper reports look even more ridiculous. Were you aware of terror at the time you were giving this role? Were you aware that terror was going on throughout oh, no. the nation? Oh, no, of course not. You know, we did Dracula, and uh, it seemed to me during Dracula I had high hopes that people would uh, react as they do in a movie uh, of that kind, and uh, uh, I don't know that they did particularly, and uh, so I'd given up. One doesn't believe in the radio audience much. You don't know that they're, that whether they're listening or not. You have no idea how many people are listening or what they're thinking. I had every hope that... Uh, that the people would be excited as they would be at a melodrama. Have you altered your plans for future problems in any way as a result of this incident? Naturally, I, uh, we will have to sit down and, and think very carefully about future broadcasts. Have you made any specific changes in any programs that were already uh, scheduled, such as next week, for instance? No. Mr. Wells, why did you use local towns in this program? Well, H.G. Wells uses local towns addressing an English audience. I was addressing an American audience, so the transplantation was quite logical, it seemed to me. He doesn't use mythical terms, he uses quite real ones. Do you think, Mr. Wells, that you might have taken unfair advantage of the public in using a method as a conveyance for authentic news? I don't believe that I have since. It is not a method original with me. It is used by many radio programs. Uh, I am terribly shocked by the effect it's had. I do not believe that the method is original with me or or peculiar to the Mercury Theater's presentation. Do you think there ought to be a law uh, against such uh, enactments as we had last night or as a result of that? I don't know what the legislation would be. I know that almost everybody in radio would do almost anything to avert the kind of thing that has happened, uh -huh. myself included, but I, uh, I don't know what the legislation would be. We simply Radio is new and we are learning about the effect it has on people. We learned a terrible lesson. Will, do you think that this will cause uh, the curbing of uh, radio bulletins on the air today? I simply can't imagine. It seems to me that uh, the effects of this will may have uh, may cause much legislation. I don't. I simply don't know. It's it. it the wisdom of, uh, of radio executives and of, uh, of an organized public will decide these things for us. It's not up to me to speak. I'm the, uh, Wells, the accused. In the end, Orson Welles, John Houseman, Howard Koch, and the Mercury Theater players had the last laugh. The extended run of the Mercury Theater on the air continued until December 1938. At that point, the struggling show had gotten its sponsor, Campbell Soup, and continued under its new name, the Campbell Playhouse. Orson Welles went on to live a legendary life, one far too full to start talking about in this single special. John Houseman continued his career in TV and movies with great success and became the face of a pop culture catchphrase during the 1980s. Smith Barney. They make money the old-fashioned way. They earn it. Howard Koch continued to write and eventually won an Academy Award for his work on the script for Casablanca. He was blacklisted in Hollywood for his outspoken political views by the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1951, but picked up his writing in 1956 with new plays and books. He was also the face of the 50th anniversary of the broadcast in 1988, appearing on many TV news reports, and was honored at the 50th anniversary celebration at Grover's Mill, New Jersey. The War of the Worlds broadcast, of course, could never have been done without the talent of the cast and crew, names you rarely hear mentioned when hearing about this broadcast. So let's fix that right now. Starring in the Mercury Theater on the Air's production of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells were Dan Seymour as the announcer, 
Carl Frank as a second studio announcer and The Stranger, Frank Reddick as the reporter Carl Phillips and the 2X2L radio operator, Howard Smith as Lieutenant Voigt bombing commander, Kenny Delmore as the policeman at Wilmoth Farm, Captain Lansing, the Secretary of the Interior, and the Bayon radio operator, Orson Welles as the narrator, Professor Richard Pearson, and himself, Paul Stewart as the first and third radio announcer, Ray Collins as Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Radio Operations, and fourth studio announcer from the roof of the broadcast building. Richard Wilson as General Montgomery Smith, the 22nd Field Artillery Officer and Langham Field Radio Operator. Stefan Schnabel as Field Artillery Observer. William Allen as the Meridian Room Announcer. And William Hers as the New York Radio Operator and the 8X3R Radio Operator. Sound effects were done by Ora Nichols, Ray Kremer, and Jim Rogan. And music conducted by Bernard Herman and performed by the CBS Orchestra. There's a lot more to say about this broadcast and the history behind it. And a lot more to discuss about what did or didn't happen during and after the broadcast as well. But that's not what this special was about. That's a topic for another special, one likely to happen in a future War of the Worlds week. This year, I wanted to talk about what did happen. The War of the Worlds broadcast. There's no arguing that fact. And the broadcast has a story all of its own, as you just heard. And that's a story I think that needs to be shared on the 80th anniversary. This special is probably some of the most fun I've had researching just about any episode of anything I've done at neozaz.com, and I hope you enjoyed at least some of it while you listened. I learned a lot this year, and I'm willing to guess that in this episode, you've learned something too. We have one more event for our War of the Worlds week for 2018, and that's our annual stream and posting of the 1938 Mercury Theater on the air broadcast of the War of the Worlds. And if you haven't heard it by now... The 80th anniversary is the perfect time to give it a listen. If you haven't caught all of this year's War of the Worlds Week celebration, all of the episodes from this year and the past years can be found at neozaz.com as well as our new iTunes feed called Everything War of the Worlds. This War of the Worlds Week has been part of our much longer, month-long celebration of Halloween at neozaz.com. We have done the most Halloween specials we've ever done before, and all those can be found at neozaz.com as well. This special, this event, this month-long celebration, and everything we do at neozaz.com would not be possible without the generosity of our Patreon supporters. Without that support, we wouldn't be able to do most of the things that we do each year. So thank you to each and every one of those supporters, present and past. And if you want to learn how you can help support the things that we do at neozaz.com, Check out our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash neozaz. Follow us on social media for our accompanying post with all of these specials that we've been talking about, not only War of the Worlds, but Halloween and throughout the rest of the year as well. We are Neozaz on Twitter and Instagram and Neozaz Podcast on Facebook. That will do it for this episode. I am Matt at Neozaz Studios in Orlando, Florida. I truly hope you enjoyed this special. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Music